0: So the journey into the wilderness has begun with the people of Israel. We began that study last week as they enter the wilderness. and We talked about the wilderness. Now they are going deeper and deeper into it. This great, vast wilderness is called the wilderness of sin. I do not think it is possible that there could be a better, more descriptive name of the wilderness of this world... Than the wilderness of sin. And we see the type of faith that it takes Moses to lead the people into this wilderness. I want you to consider a few things that led to this grumbling. I want you to consider the faith of Moses leading the people to where they're going. This is a barren desert. And Moses is leading nearly two million people. Every step they take is taking them further and further away from the provisions that were in Egypt. From the provisions that they had and the cities that, that they were able to get, you know, find sustenance from, they're moving further and further away. Into a wilderness. And keep in mind that Moses, for 40 years, had lived in this wilderness. He knew exactly how barren it was. He knew, keep in mind, he's leading 2 million people. Where do you feed 2 million people out in the wilderness? Every day. Where does this happen? But Moses had come to a place in his faith, like many of us, after 40 years of learning. Abraham, after nearly 25 years of wavering back and forth, finally says, God, I don't understand it, but I'm going to raise the knife if that's what you tell me to do. Moses, after 40 years in the wilderness and meeting God at the burning bush, Moses, after going to Pharaoh and plague after plague after plague, Moses, after seeing the the, the sea parted and going through it, Moses has made up his mind. The only thing that really matters is what God tells us to do. And Moses didn't just depend on God for a miracle. Moses knew good and well, if two million of us are going to survive out here in this barren wasteland, it's going to take a series of daily miracles for God to take care of us. And yet Moses... Here's what God says in his marching forward. Yet the people that are following Moses have an entirely different mindset. These people are really more like infant Christians who have not had 40 years of the wilderness time with God yet. They have not had the same burning bush experience that Moses had. And we see that they are quick. One day they're up, one day they're down. One day they're worshiping, one day they're not. And our text tells us they had this snarky little comment that we wish we would have died back in Egypt. Technically, we wish the Lord would have killed us back in Egypt where it was great. Now, they forget they were slaves and that everything was harder on them there this is what happens when we get a little snarky attitude against God. We, we just wish, and so the, here's the implication. God is going to kill us. That's the implication. We're going to die. God is killing us. That's what God is doing. We just wish he would have did it back in Egypt where everything was great. It's a very snarky comment. I want you to consider not only the snarkiness of the comment, but I want you to consider the conditions in which the comment was made. This particular generation of people witnessed with their own eyes more divine miracles than, like, like earth-shattering earth miracles than any other generation. And they had witnessed them in a flurry of time, like a matter of months. They've seen the plagues. They've seen God rescue them from the final three plagues, including the plague of the firstborn. They have watched God part the Red Sea. They've walked across on dry land. They've watched the sea destroy their enemies. And as we studied last week, they have already witnessed God take bitter water, and miraculously make it sweet so that they would have something to drink. They've seen all of this. They weren't reading about it like we are. They had walked through it. And after all of that, their response is, oh, we just wish God would have killed us back there instead of this barren wasteland. It's difficult to overstate the wickedness of these people it's difficult to overstate just how flaky they were. How quick they are to turn on God and not just turn on God and like, maybe I'm not sure if God's gonna take care of us, but get all snarky about it, like God just brought us here to murder us. So I ask the question, what is God's response to this utter stupidity and wickedness of his own people? He said, I'm going to rain down something on these people. What did God say is going to rain down on them? Brimstone and fire? Nope. Did God say, I'm going to rain down my judgment on these people? Nope. He said, I'm going to rain down bread on them that will sustain them and give them life. I cannot overstate the greatness of the grace of God. But there is a really great lesson here for spiritual leaders. When your people, when our people are in and then out, up and then down, on fire and then cold, want to serve God today and tomorrow they're out sinning like crazy. The answer of God is feed the sheep. That's the answer. Give them the word of God. The answer of God is grace. The answer of God is give them something that can sustain their soul and give them life. Now listen, the the default of, of the flesh nature is instead to come down with punishment. And it's important to understand something. This is true for spiritual leaders. This is true for parents that are sick of your kids acting like idiots. It's true for all of us. You cannot shame somebody into falling in love with Jesus. You cannot shame somebody into a true, intimate relationship with their creator. In fact, The Bible says that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so, if I'm trying to produce the righteousness of God in somebody, I can't do that by being mad and mean and trying to overpower them and shame them into turning. It doesn't work. At best, it produces behavioral change a period of time. The Bible also says this it says that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. It's not the wrath of God that leads us to repentance. it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Now understand something anybody that's ever truly been born again, truly truly born again, turned from their sins, You're not playing games. You're not playing the fool. You're not just some tear amongst the wheat. You're the real deal. Anybody that's truly been saved will tell you this. There's been two major, major parts that took place in their life that brought them into a saving relationship with God. Number one was the black backdrop of sin, the realization that I am a sinner and that my sins separate me from God. That realization must exist. But what ultimately turns us to God is the reality that He is good. That despite the truth that I am a sinner, God loves me. That despite the truth of my black backdrop of all that I've done that is wrong and evil, God is good and God Wants me, and God sent his son to die for me. It is that realization that God is good that ultimately moves the heart to repent and follow this good God. And when we see God's response to the murmuring of his people is that he's going to feed them, it teaches us something about God and it teaches something about ministry. It's no wonder. There's, it it changes even the way you see the passage about, remember when Jesus came to Peter, and Peter had blown it. If anybody was ever guilty of blowing it, it was Peter. If there's anybody that ever shouldn't have done it, it was Peter. Peter had three years of Jesus most inner circle. In a lot of ways, Jesus has spent more time teaching and one-on-one with Peter than anybody else on the planet. And here's Peter in the final day of Jesus' life denying him and, and actually saying he doesn't even know the man. You know, the first conversation that Jesus has with Peter, he doesn't even mention the denial. There's not even like, hey, bro, what happened, man? None of it. He just comes to Jesus to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you really love me? Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Consider that what God does here when his people have murmured and sinned against him is that he feeds them. And then he comes to Peter, and rather than ripping Peter, he's just good to Peter. But what does he tell Peter to do? Feed my sheep. And Peter, who would be one of the the leading pastors that started the, the church as we know it, trust me, there'd be a lot of times he would need to remember that lesson when people would do him wrong and people would go up and down and the church would do this and the church would do that. Peter would need to remember, my job is to feed the sheep, feed the sheep, feed the sheep, feed the sheep. We need to be feeding the flock. Now, we're still in the intro this morning. What did God feed them? Bread from heaven. It's called manna because it was different than anything they had ever seen seen before. The, the, the word manna, what it literally means is, what is it? That's what it means. And when the people saw it, when, I didn't read the whole chapter this morning for sake of time, but when you read through it, it was white, it was small, it was round, it was, like, it, it was on the ground. And so they, they're like, what is that? You know, what is it? And that's what the word manna means. It was food from heaven that was different from anything else they had ever uh, ever had. Now, this is the most important part of the introduction this morning. It is indisputable that the bread from heaven, the manna, is a picture or foreshadow of two things. The Word of God written and the Word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. I want to show you two passages, because it's just important that we settle this, that the manna from heaven, the bread from heaven, is a reference to the Word of God. And when we settle that, then we look at how do we apply it. So, uh, two passages this morning. John chapter 6, this is what Jesus said about it. Jesus then said to them, Now there's a reference to Jesus as the bread from heaven. Now look what Jesus said about the scriptures in John chapter 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So when Jesus was resurrected, and he was on the uh, the, dis- the disciples were on the road to Emmaus, they Hadn't seen the resurrected Lord yet. They, are, they were discouraged. Jesus shows up, and here's what the Bible tells us. that Jesus began to open the Scriptures to them. It's not necessarily like he had a scroll and was reading it as they went, but he began to talk about the Word of God. And it makes an interesting statement that says, beginning at Moses, which is a reference to the first five books of the Bible. So beginning at the beginning and working through the prophets, Jesus explained to them how the scriptures pointed to all things about himself. Jesus said these scriptures, they testify of him. This is why in John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, And the Word was God. And nothing was made that was made that wasn't made by Him. And then 13 verses later it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is the Word made flesh And Jesus has said, without any question, what was going on with Moses back there, that bread from heaven, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread. It was my father, and that was just a little foretaste of who I am, the bread of life. Almost done with our intro. So, God's response to the fickleness of his people, God's response to the murmuring of his people, God's response to the wavering of his people was, give them my word. And so this morning, what can we learn about the bread of life, the bread of heaven, as it relates to the word of God for you and I? Number one, note that the manna, quite simply, was a supernatural gift. Verse 4 tells us that the bread came down from heaven. It rained down from heaven. It, wasn't, it didn't grow on trees. It came from heaven. It was not a product of the earth. It was not manufactured by man. It was not something that they had brought with them out of Egypt. It was a supernatural gift. So it is with the Word of God. This is a supernatural book, and it is a gift from God to His people. It is a supernatural book, that literally has the power to produce life. There has never been another book like this one made, and there never will be another one. To be fair, it's not really a book. It is a collection of 66 different writings. And these 66 different writings or letters were written over the span of 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors. And yet, somehow, all say the same thing. Could you imagine a scenario where 40 human beings over the course of 1,500 years all claim God has spoken to them and they pin down what God has spoken to them. And we were to take all 40 of those writings, compile 66 books total together, and then read them, what are the chances they would all say the same thing and have one consistent story from the beginning to the end? It's nonsense to think that's even possible. Unless something supernatural happens, and you end up with one consistent story about the fall of man to turn their backs on God, and a God who is faithful to devise a plan to deliver his people out of the clutches of sin. From the beginning to the end, the story is the same. There are people who question the author, you know, the book. If you've ever heard anybody try to dispute anything, you've probably heard the idea that how can we even trust the Bible? How do you even know if it's true? Well, first of all, trust me, a supernatural God who gave us a supernatural book will absolutely supernaturally keep his word intact. And I want you to know something. People say things like, for example, this thing's been translated so many times. It's sort of like the thing going around the room. You whisper to one person who whispers to another. There's no way you could ever know. That is such a stupid argument. And if that's what you really believe, you need to research the stuff you read or hear on Google. That is so dumb. It's just not, there's not even a shred of truth to it. The New Testament was primarily written in Greek. We have 24,000 fragments, 24,000 folks, that's a lot of originals written in the Greek of the New Testament, 24,000 people will say, You can't. You know, it's written in languages that that are people don't use anymore. It is utterly and entirely possible to learn Greek. Speak it if you want. It's just—it's just a lie. Whoever says that, they're just lying to you. It's not even true. So the idea that somehow we don't have the originals and we can't know what was originally said is just so stupid. It's beyond. It's mind blowing to me. Like who? Who gets to just say that, and then all of a sudden it becomes, like, true? That's that's just crazy. That's like me just saying, you know, I'm six foot one. Just accept it. It is what it is. I, you, it's just like, what, where I don't know where people come up with this stuff. Now, get this. The great critic out there is like, well, that's a reference to the Hebrew, the original Hebrew and Aramaic. Okay. Well, first of all, number one, Um We still have the Old Testament in Hebrew and Aramaic. Number two, it's not even though, imagine if you quit speaking English. Let's just say English ceased to be. It's not as if somehow in the future you couldn't, you know, it'd be impossible to know what English text meant. It's nonsense. But really, here's the dagger in the whole Old Testament Hebrew argument. In Jesus' era of time, the Old Testament had been translated entirely entirely into Greek. And often when Jesus quoted Scripture in His era of time, He quoted the Greek translation of the Old Testament and called it the Holy Scriptures. So if we have Jesus Christ Himself validating that the Greek translation of the Old Testament from 2,000 years ago was, in fact, a correct translation of the Word of God, guess what? We still have that translation. I mean, the arguments that people try to make to somehow undermine this book, they honestly, they take less than two minutes to just completely obliterate, uh, as I did right there, and I'm just getting started. Here's what you need to know, and here's point number one. This is a supernatural book. There's never been another book like this on the planet. There never will be. This is the word of almighty God himself, the word from heaven come down to the earth. Number one, it was a supernatural gift. Look what Romans 1.16 tells us about this supernatural gift. I'm not ashamed of of the gospel, for it is the power of God. It is supernaturally Power of God For salvation to everyone who believes Number two, notice that the manna Came to where the people were The people did not Have to, like when it was time to get their manna Each day, they did not have to Travel through the wilderness Or out of the wilderness In order to get it, it literally Came to where they were So it is With the word of God It is blessedly accessible to you and I. It is there for us. Now, don't miss something here. The very fact that it was so accessible forced the Israelites to be responsible with it. Consider that each morning, it was outside of their camp. Here's what that means. In order to leave the house, they're going to have to do one of two things. Gather it like they're supposed to or trample on it with their feet because there it is. We, too, similarly are responsible for what we do with the Word of God. Most of us have two or three of these sitting somewhere in our house. Most of us, in order to get out of the house and get our day started and leave, at one point or another, you've got to walk past one of these things. And to a degree, we see this picture of responsibility where either you're going to take it and you're going to gather it like you're supposed to and you're going to do what you're supposed to do with the Word of God, or you're going to walk right past it and to a degree, in essence, trampling the gift, the supernatural gift that God gave us to start our day. So the manna came to where the people were. Number three, notice that the manna, it was designed, it was meant to be eaten. The manna was not given to simply look at it. They weren't supposed to gather it and then put it somewhere on the shelf to admire it. The very design was that they would eat it. It was God's provision for their bodily needs. So it is with the Word of God. It is God's provision for our spiritual needs. Consider the application of physical food, the physical manna, and the spiritual food. If food's going to do what it's supposed to do, you've got to eat it. It don't matter how beautiful the spread is on the table. Sitting around admiring it ain't going to do anything for you. In fact, if you don't do something with it, what happens with food, it rots. So, the whole purpose of it, the design of it, is that you take it, you put it in your mouth, and I want, I want you to think about the way that food actually works and its application to the Word of God. The first thing you have to do is consume it. That's, that's where you got to start. If food's going to work, you got to eat it. Concerning the Word, that means you've got to read it. You've got to hear it. Like, you have to find a way to get this inside the body. And then once food goes in the body... Note that it is digested. Spiritually, the application to the Word of God is that it's really not enough to just be hearing it, to just like be able to quote some, like you're smart and you know some Scripture. You need to be digesting it. And here's what I mean by that. There needs to be a practice in your life as a Christian in your own personal Bible reading, um, you should do the same thing with sermons. When you show up and hear me preach, you should do this exact same thing. There should be a practice where after you hear it, after you consume it, you take time to digest it. Think about it. Meditate on the Word. What is its application to me? And the final thing that happens with food once we've digested it is it literally becomes part of our body. It literally fuels us. It is assimilated into our being. And you'll find that once you've been in the Word and you've allowed the Word to get in you and you've taken the time to meditate on it and digest it and, 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 and you think on it, you'll find all of a sudden the Word starts to become part of who you are it starts to fuel you. It starts to give you the energy to live the Christian life that God's called you to live. So the food was to be eaten. The word of God, it is for us to feed upon. Number four, the manna was gathered daily. Look at Exodus sixteen four. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. So with the exception of the Sabbath, God told the people on, Saturday, on, on Friday, if you'll gather enough for two days, I will make sure that it lasts through Saturday, but that's the only day that works. Every other day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, <clears throat> you have to get enough food for one day. you got to gather it every day. So today's food will not be sufficient for tomorrow. Now, the principle applies to the Word of God. We need it continually. And I want to be really cautious in how I press this point. I've got a God given responsibility to accurately teach the Word of God. Not my lifestyle, not my beliefs, but what does the Word of God actually say? So I'm going to tell you something that most Bible believing pastors that are in my circle of the world and my circle of theology are very hesitant to say though they will acknowledge that what I'm telling you is true. Nowhere does the Bible say you have to read the Bible every day. And so we want to be really careful not to make a Christian law where God himself did not make a law. We also have to keep in mind that for Thousands of years. People didn't have Bibles. There was no printing press. The average follower of God, they had to trust upon showing up to a service like this and hearing the word of God read out loud with the scrolls that were kept at the place of worship. And often, and the lion's share of the time most families that had some access to the word of god they wouldn't have for example the whole old testament it might be just it might just be the book of isaiah that they were somehow able to get a scroll of our forefathers before us could have never imagined a scenario like we live in in today where we have the bible at our fingertips and so when the word was written and we see the idea of daily feasting upon the word here is the principle that i am willing to say absolutely i will die on this hill the bible teaches this here's the principle that every single day god's children need to be feasting upon god's word how we do that i'm cautious not to make a law Psalm 1, for example, says that blessed is the man who meditates on the law of God day and night. It's possible to meditate on the law of God without necessarily having a text in front of you. It's possible um, that, you know, some of you may not actually open up your Bible and read it today, but this would be an example where you showed up and literally heard the Word of God taught, heard the Word of God read, and you're going to take what you heard and, and you're going to meditate on it. So we want to be careful. And I, One of the reasons I want to be careful there is because I think when we try to make some super solid law, that like if you're a good Christian and you really love God, you're going to get up every single day at this particular time, and you're going, to, you're going to read X amount of scriptures. Well, when we make that blanket thing that God didn't make for us, number one, we're destined to fail. And a lot of people end up feeling like, well, if I can't do it, then why do it at all? I mean, if I'm going to fail, I'd rather just not even try. See, that's what the enemy wants you to do. You got to stop that mindset and you got to understand this is the sustenance of life for your spiritual life. You better give it all that you've got. Now, I want to, I want so so I've dealt with that. Now, I want to kind of sw- swing the ping, pendulum back the other way and I want to acknowledge that, that, you know, these folks didn't, they didn't have access to the word like we do. And, We cannot understand the blessing that we have if we've never been without. We don't know what it's like to not have a Bible. Most of us have three or four in the house. And I want to remind you, if there was a responsibility to do something with it, how much more are we responsible to do something with the word that God has given us? Here's the principle Here's the point, we're going to move you need to be in the word of God daily. And how you do that, whether you're listening to audio, whether you're reading it and meditating on it afterwards, you know, whether you're not able for one reason or another to really open up a physical copy of God's word and read it, but you're going to be committed to meditating on the scriptures you do know. Here's the principle. The Word of God is a sustenance of our souls, folks. And if you're not feasting on it every day, you're going to be very weak spiritually. So, the manna was gathered daily. Next, notice the manna was gathered in the morning. It wasn't just daily. It wasn't just at any point throughout the day. It was in the morning. And I also want to be careful not to make some law here that the Bible doesn't make for us. But there is a principle here that's very important. And here's the principle. The best time for your devotion to the Word of God and your time with God, the best time is before other things occupy your attention. That's the best time. Now, I've seen people, and I mean sincere, true spiritual people, that have had the great discipline It's just easier for them at night when it gets quiet and everybody goes to bed. That's why I say I'm real careful to press the law here. But they are few and far between. If that's you, great. What's far more important than whether you do it at 6 a.m. or 6 p.m., what's far more important is that you do it. And if you are super disciplined and your dime is nighttime, then what we see is, is that the Word of God has taken a priority in your life and you've made sure that you've structured your life in such a way that that becomes your time with God. Fine, 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 fine. Here's the point is that the divine word cannot take any secondary seat to anything in our lives. That's the point. And it is easiest to demonstrate that when it becomes the first thing that we do each day. What a difference it would make in a whole lot of Christians' lives if each day was begun in God's presence and in God's word. How many weak and sick Christians, spiritually speaking, would become strong and healthy, spiritually speaking, if they learn the discipline of just spending some time with God, in God's word, every day of their life. I'm telling you, it'll revolutionize your Christian life. You might not have time to study a full chapter every day, fine, but certainly you've got enough time to pray and select even one verse that you can read to start your day and then meditate on that verse throughout the day. Next, notice that the manna was obtained by work. It's a very important point this morning about the Word of God. Now, they did not labor to bring the manna down from heaven. Remember, the manna came to where they were. But God still made them gather it. He didn't just put it in their mouth. They had to gather it, and then they had to put it in their own mouth. And it was work. And the lesson here is that there is diligence needed concerning taking in the Word of God. It's not always fun. The Word of God was not provided for our entertainment. And we've become such an entertainment-driven people that we're not entertained by the Word of God, and so we get bored with the Word of God quickly. You have got to work, man. Every time you open the Scriptures, it's not just going to be some great, you know, heaven coming from the skies. Sometimes it takes work. In fact, consider... That the book of Proverbs, when it tells us about the Word of God, when it tells us about the wisdom of God, the understanding of God, the discernment of God, it tells us about those things in this context. It says you should want them. You should seek them as you search for silver or a hidden treasure. That's work. Here's what that tells me. It's going to take me a little time sometimes before I hit the jackpot. I'm going to have to study some before all of a sudden there's that moment when it's like, that's what I've been looking for. God, I've been asking for some direction on this thing in my life. I've been asking for you to give me some wisdom. I've been asking for you to help me to understand your word. And I've studied for days, maybe for weeks, and never really felt like I had that moment. But there it is. And I'm going to tell you, there's something significant about finding treasure. There's a certain, there's a certain uh, f- just uh, joy that comes along with it, like it was worth the journey. It was worth the work. I finally found it. Do you realize that's sort of the way that studying the Word of God is pictured for us? The Word tells us that about the Word. And so you've got to be diligent. You've got to work at taking in the word. You've just got to learn to discipline. There are certain things in your Christian life that you'll, you'll never, the, the, the walls that you want to break through, the plateau that you want to break, you're just, it's not going to happen if you don't learn to get disciplined and diligent about seeking the Lord in prayer and in his word. And there's going to be times that it's awesome, and there's going to be times that it's not. But i tell you this. Here's what the Bible says, that there is profit in all labor. That's what God says about it. You might not feel like you're getting it now, but you'll get it later. There have been times in my life I've read stuff. I'm like, what in the world am I reading this for? I don't understand really what's going on. God, this is so boring. Why would you put this in here? Out of all the things that you could leave us with, why do we even care about this? And I'm not, I, I, I mean this, before you and before God, I've had that thought before when I've been reading, and literally six weeks later, all of a sudden, it's like I saw, it's like God gave me revelation in a situation with that passage that I didn't see how it was relevant six weeks ago. And that passage comes in my mind through the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, man, I'm so grateful that I had the discipline six weeks ago to read that, and even though I didn't fully get it back then, it's like, now I get it. Because there's labor in all work, folks. And they had to work to obtain the word. And heres I just want to encourage you this morning. You've got to work to obtain the word. I'm going to take a little rabbit trail and come back. One of the things that uh, I struggled with, um, I didn't struggle with, my wife struggled with when we first got married was reading the word. And uh, she was almost embarrassed to talk about it. And, um, you know, she's married to a pastor. She should she must be somebody that just probably, you know, consumes the word of God. And after several years, um, we were pastoring here, so we'd probably been saved six or seven years. She she finally just talked to me about it, and she's like, "I just don't like reading because it makes me feel stupid. I'll read three verses, and I don't know what it means. And like you read, and you know so much. And she's like, and so and it just is so discouraging to me. And so for her, it was like a it was just like this nasty duty that you got to do if you're going to be a good Christian. That constantly made her feel like, hey, I'm not getting anything out of it. And I want to share with you what I shared with her, and that was, look, I think you're, you're going at it the wrong direction. First of all, you need to recognize this right here, this is like a love letter from our father so that we could know him, and, and he didn't write it in a bunch of secret code that only his most brightest children would ever be able to understand. So you, first of all, you need to stop coming at it from that direction. Second of all, you need to understand most of these were letters, Imagine a scenario where I want to tell you something important, and I write you a letter. And my letter, let's just say my letter is 10 pages long. And I've got a great big theme in this letter that I want you to know. And throughout the whole letter, I'm going to say certain things that enforce what I'm trying to communicate. Imagine if the way you took that letter was that once a day you were going to read three sentences. You'd lose sight of what I was really trying to to, to say. Imagine if you get a few sentences in, you're like, well, I don't really understand what he meant by that sentence. But if you just keep reading and you don't stop and you don't get hung up on it and you don't try to focus on every single word of every sentence and you just read through the whole thing, you know what's going to happen is you're going to have a greater comprehension of what the overall letter was about. And I said, I just want to challenge you, instead of reading three to five verses, why don't you just read three to five chapters? And it don't matter if you don't get it totally. It don't matter if you don't understand every single line. Just read, and what you're going to find is there's a certain flow that every author has. And once you get into it, all of a sudden you're making a lot of ground. You're no longer stopping at two to three verses. And you get some confidence because you're reading three to five chapters a day. But more importantly than that confidence to, to read the Word, you're actually starting to see it in the context it was written to start with and you're catching the big themes, and it absolutely changed your life, totally revolutionized your life, and uh, I didn't share that in the first service, but I just felt compelled to just like share that now, that um, guys, God's word was written to us so that we could know him, it's not it's not code, God wants every single one of his sons and daughters to know him, and uh, we thank God for teachers, thank God for people with the call of God on their life to to teach and you know, do, do uh, the type of stuff that I do as a pastor, but the Word of God is meant for, to be consumed by everybody and uh, should not have a secondary place in our life, but it does take work, and so be committed to the work. I am convinced that the masses of Christianity do not understand that so much of what I will call divine things we obtain them through diligence we obtain them through being disciplined that's how we that's that's how that's how we obtain the blessings if you will of God is through diligence it's still the grace of God it's still the mercy of God but it's through diligence you you can't be lazy about the things of God and expect that somehow your life is just going to be blessed by God that you're going to be some deep spiritual person you can't be asking God God I want to know you more if you're not even doing your part to know him more, right? Like, there, there's, there's work that is involved in it. All right, got to move. Next, notice that the manna was to be gathered by each individual. In Exodus 16, 16, it says, This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it, each one of you. It has to be done individually. It is your responsibility to be taking in the bread of life for you. And you, act, you, you can't take it in for anyone else. And no one else can take it in for you. It doesn't matter how spiritual your husband is. doesn't matter how spiritual your wife is. doesn't matter how spiritual your granddaddy is. doesn't matter how spiritual someone is in your life. It doesn't, does not matter. You don't get spiritual by just rubbing off to somebody. It is an individual decision that you must personally allow the Word of God to take residence in your heart. And this is true not only of the Word, but of all points, this one has great emphasis on the Lord Jesus Christ, the bread of life that came down from heaven. Each individual must accept Jesus. I can't, I can't accept Christ for you. You can't accept Christ for anyone else. Every individual has to make that decision. It is a very personal matter. And God said concerning this bread that will sustain your souls, each one of you must pick it up for himself. Number eight, note that the manna was despised by the mixed multitude. In numbers 11, it says now the rabble, that's a word for the mixed multitude, that was among them, had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. That cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Notice it's not even manna to eat. It's manna to look at. You remember, in uh, if you have been part of this long study of Exodus, you'll remember that Israel did not come up out of Egypt alone. The Bible told us there was a mixed multitude that joined them. That mixed multitude was made up of Egyptians that were just like, I ain't staying here any longer. God's rained down ten plagues on this land, and the firstborn are all dead. We're heading out with these people. It was made up of some people that were intermarried, no doubt, as these slaves had lived there for 400 years. No doubt there was intermarriages, and some of the people just said, we're going with you. We don't know exactly who all the mixed multitude was, but we know this. They were mixed, and it was a multitude. It was a big chunk of people. And in Numbers 11, we find out that that mixed multitude of people, they were the first to grumble against the manna. Now, the same thing is true today. This mixed multitude despised the bread from heaven and even influenced the church to despise it as well. The wheat grows with the tares. And I'm telling you, We've wa- we're watching it happen on a scale that has never happened in history where the Christian church is even questioning the Word of God. Where the Christian church, like the rest of their mixed multitude forefathers before them, the rest of the tares, the rest of the false converts, the Christian church, in large part, has even begun to question the authenticity of the Word of God. They begin to despise the Word of God. We have got to stand up for the Word of God. The church has to fall in love again with the Word of God. You need to recognize that the tares amongst the wheat, the fake amongst the real, The false against the true. They will always despise the true word of God. Finally, this morning, as our worship team comes, note that the manna lasted until Canaan was reached. First, let's look at the passage, and then I want to comment on it. In uh, verse 35 of Exodus 16, the people of Israel ate the manna forty years. Forty years until they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna until they came to the borderland of Canaan. So if you're not familiar with Canaan, Canaan was the land that God had promised Israel they would eventually get to that was flowing with milk and honey. Homes that they did not build. It is a reference to our coming heaven. To any of my theologian friends out there, they're like, no, they had to fight in Canaan, so it can't be heaven. Listen, I get it. Biblically, though, there's almost two or more pictures in any analogy. And Canaan is, in my opinion, indisputably also a reference to heaven, the land that flows with milk and honey, a land where you know God, Jesus went to build mansions for us. Where homes are built that we didn't build. It also was the promised land. So, the Bible tells us they were fed with manna until they reached Canaan. Here's the lesson. This blessed book. I pray the Holy Spirit will just give us all understanding of what I'm about to tell you. This blessed word is all that we need to sustain us until we make it to heaven. This isn't just something that the young Christian needs to learn before you start your journey. If you've been saved 10 years, 1 year, 20 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, this right here is is the sustenance of your spiritual life until you get to heaven. And thank God it is enough. It will be enough. It has always been enough. This here, brothers and sisters, is what we are to be feasting upon, what we are to be in, what we are to be meditating upon. The Word of God is our strength and our sustenance until we make it home. There is no other food this morning, may we fall in love again with the Word of God. May we see the need for the Word of God. May we read it more carefully. Meditate on it more frequently. Hunger and thirst for it daily. And be diligent to do the work to take it in.